my privilege to um, join you this morning and talk about uh, a very important issue of our day. Uh, And I think a root um, concept when we talk about the sanctity of human life is what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And before we get started, let's pray together. Father, we think about this great one of these great issues of our day that tends to too often God just kind of fly under the radar, Lord, and we just want to, we don't want to shut our eyes to it, Lord, but we want to look at it this morning, as painful as it may be, and, and ask, Lord, what, what role do we have to play in it? And we just pray for our nation, God. Just pray for its leaders, Lord. I pray for our churches, Lord, that as the brother said, we would be the place, Lord, where people would run to in crisis, that we would be the place, Lord, where lives are saved. And so help us, God, to this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to talk about uh, this morning, uh, as we talk about the sanctity of human life, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human, and does life have meaning and value? Um, Those questions, to some, may seem obvious, but the reality is, is we live in a day where in the in kind of the public arena, people can't even define what a human is or what a woman is or what a man is. And if we can't even define what a human being is, how can we begin to protect it, care about it, value it? And so... We have to get this right before we can get anything else right. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be in the image of God? That's what we're going to talk about from Genesis, and we're going to start in chapter 1. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and then we're going to turn to chapter 5, verse 3, and then to chapter 9, verse 6. Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat those as we go. But first, Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then turn to chapter 5, verse 3. says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And now turn to chapter 9, verse 6. 
chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The word of God. You may be seated. So the question I want to try to answer this morning is, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And why is it important? What does it mean to be made in God's image? As I said, an alternate form of this question is, what does it mean to be human? Because God made humanity in his image. So the core component, then biblically speaking, of what it means to be a human being is that we are image bearers of God Almighty. And so to understand even what we're talking about here, to understand the issue of the sanctity of human life, we have to understand how much really is at stake in this issue. And believe it or not, there's even more at stake than the lives of 60 million people, human beings, that have been aborted since Roe versus Wade in the United States. What's at stake is even what it means to be human. And so as we see this morning, I just, uh, we see the importance then of the need to lay a theological foundation for the sanctity of human life. Contrary to the evolutionary fairy tales of modern science, which I understand that's a pretty strong statement, but I believe that even as science at this very moment is discovering the complexity of life that Charles Darwin had no idea about, even some secular scientists are coming to the conclusion that this such complexity could not have been brought about by chance. So contrary to this narrative, the Bible says that the human being is infinitely more than a highly evolved animal. We exist because God wanted us to exist. We exist in a unique relationship with the rest of the created order, which actually is obvious whether you're Christian or not. Something is unique about humanity over and against any other created thing. We, uh, the Bible says that we were made as the crown of God's creation. Unique because we and we alone are made in his image. Human beings are images of the divine. Every human being you've ever seen. No matter how attractive or unattractive they appear to you are made in the divine image of God Almighty. Humans are the alone are the only ones graciously put into this category as image bearers of God. Therefore, every human being bears an unbelievably great inherent dignity, not that we are glorious in ourselves, but because we bear the image of the all-glorious one. To see a human being, then, even a fallen one, is to behold something of the divine. And so we see, then, the glory of what it means to be human. To be made in God's image. And we see, then, that a key aspect of what it means to be made in God's image is that God, as the cosmic king, wills, he wills to exercise his authority as king over all creation by sharing that authority with us. That's why before that that key statement there in verse 27, he prefaces it 
he he, he prefaces it and uh, uh, after it, he talks about the dominion that man will have. So a key aspect of being made in God's image is that as his image bearers, we reflect him, and that is we share his authority in the world. God rules over the world, and yet the way he chose to rule the world is by making tiny little images of himself and saying to them, go and reign for me. That's incredible, isn't it? That's amazing that God made humanity and he made the whole world in essence to be a theater of his own glory where his tiny little image bearers rule for if, in his name and for his sake as little pictures of who he is. It's incredible. That's what we were made for, made to be, made to do. Rule as my kings and queens under my authority. God says, I give the whole earth to you, reign over it for me and my purposes. And so he created us for the purpose then of reigning as kings and queens under his good authority as the king of kings. And he put us here to create and to develop. And even things such as art and science and technology and all these things and a just society and a beautiful culture. All these things are supposed to be created by man, developed by man, us ruling over the earth, displaying his glory. But see, there's a key aspect in all of this, and that is that for us to experience all that God had for us, there was one key thing, and we, that we had to get the order right. God gave us the world as long as we wouldn't forget one crucial thing. He gave us dominion over the world. The one thing we couldn't forget is that he still has dominion over us. That's, if you think about it, that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented, right? He gave them everything. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He said, you can have the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented one, you know, I mean, I think at its core, what it did is it represented one thing. It represented God's authority. In other words, God told Adam and Eve, I give you the world. There's just one thing you have to remember. I can still say no. Not this. I'm still the king. And so if you think about it, insofar as humanity would have trusted God and joyfully submitted to his rule and his wisdom in our lives, God would have given us the world and much more besides. But Adam and Eve rebelled and they didn't trust and they fell and we with them. Which is, of course, why Jesus came. As the Apostle Paul said, that the second... He's the second Adam. He came to die for our sin, to rise from the dead, defeating the penalty of our sin, which is death, and to proclaim to those whose sin is forgiven in him that we won't ultimately die, but that we will be restored to life, to reign with him as we were made to in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the gospel. God making right what sin made wrong. 
Oh, that we would believe this. Oh, that our churches would believe this, that the world would believe this, that our ones would believe this. But despite our fallen state, the image of God remains in us, distorted but not destroyed. And we see this clearly in Genesis 5-3, which we read, which says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Remember, Seth was the son that God gave Adam in, in the place of Abel, who was killed by Cain. And it says explicitly here that uh, Seth is, comes out of Adam in his own likeness, the same exact language that is used of Adam with respect to God. And so what we're being told here is that the image that is stamped upon us is passed then from one human generation to another. And that is just as Adam shared in the image of God, so Seth shared in that same image, the image of Adam. And so that means that every human generation bears with it the divine image passed down through it. And so Seth, when he was, we could say from the moment of conception, was a divine image bearer just as his father Adam was. And if we bear, and if we bear the divine image, our children do too. Indeed, every human being every bo- ever born of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue bears the divine image of God. Because we're all descended from one man. There's really only one race, the human race. And we all bear that same image, the image of God. And because this is true, that means every person matters. Every person has meaning. Every person is valuable. Because that person regardless of anything else in their lives, still bear the image of God. So that means everybody matters. The nations matter. We're all descended from Adam. And this brings us to a a very significant lesson we learned from that next verse in Genesis 9, verse 6, where it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, For God made man in his own image. So this verse comes after the flood. So God has literally wiped out the entirety of humanity, save one family, because of the great wickedness of the people. And if you read it before, you understand that he uses the same similar language that God told Adam in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And so uh, it's clear then that Adam is basically, God's hitting the reset button on humanity. And one of the things, one of the commands that he gives is that of that is that of capital punishment for murderers. And there's a reason why he says that. He says that it's because... Uh, if a man sheds the blood of man, by man by, uh, shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So we don't know exactly why, but perhaps the, com- the command of capital punishment here after the flood was a way that God intended to hope, maybe help prevent humanity from rising to the same level of wickedness that it had pre-flood. 
We don't know that for sure. But we know here the reason that is given for why murder is to be capitally punished. And that is because man is made in God's image. What does that mean? It means the dignity and holiness and sanctity and sacredness of a human life is bound up in the fact that every human being bears the image of God. That's why such a crime would result in such a punishment. Because to unrighteously end a human life is a profanation of the divine image. In other words, it's blasphemy to profane the image of God, which is man. I want you to think, think about it. Some, some people today still feel an inner revulsion, for example, when they see the U.S. flag burned or stomped on. Why is that? Because... Many people look at the flag, and, they, and to them, what, what is it? The flag represents something, right? It's not just a piece of cloth. It represents something, something noble, something dignified, something worthy of honor. And to profane the symbol is what? An attempt to profane the thing itself. You see? Well, how do you think God feels when people profane and stomp on and treat his very image as filth. When we don't treat other human beings with respect and dignity. How do you think God feels about that? When we stomp on his image and treat it with contempt. Let me tell you something. God will not be mocked. He won't be mocked. And this tells us then why sin is such a big deal. Sin is an infinitely big deal warranting infinite punishment because all sin is ultimately against God and not just man. Because when you sin against man, you're sinning against God because God made man in his own image. You're profaning God's image. You're taking something that God has specifically chosen to represent who he is to the world, and you're trampling on it like a piece of garbage. And God will not sit idly by while his name is profaned among the nations. There will be a day of reckoning. So what we see here is that sin is not so great. It's, it's so great not because it hurts others, although it does, and that's part of it. But sin is so wicked and evil because it blasphemes the name of God. And to treat a human being which bears the divine image as anything less than what it, they are is to trample upon that which represents God himself. And so, interestingly, we see then in this case that capital punishment in the case of murder is a way... Is a way of upholding the holiness and honor and sacredness of God's image. Right? I've actually heard this verse used the opposite way of saying, uh, or, or this verse dismissed basically in saying that the sanctity of life requires that we can't believe in capital punishment. But I would disagree based on this verse. 
God sees that if somebody murders another image bearer and they are allowed to live, that is a profanation of his image. Why? Because they have trampled on that image and then no justice is done to uphold the sacredness of that image. If you call something sacred, but then do nothing to guard its sacredness, then guess what? You're not, you're not, you don't actually believe it's sacred. And so to allow someone to profane God's image so, so directly and clearly and then do nothing about it is to say that that image itself doesn't matter. That that life itself didn't matter. So justice then is not a way of, we can't, God upholds the sanctity of human life. By saying that life is so sacred that if you intentionally violate it, then you forfeit your own right to it. That's how sacred life is. And to not, and to not uphold the dignity of life by giving justice where it is due is to profane the dignity of life itself. And we learn this from Genesis 9 verse 6. That human life is sacred because human life bears the image of God Almighty. Life is valuable. It's always valuable. And that's why we have to uphold it and defend it. And fight for the value of it. When that is being threatened. Like it is today, like it never has been before. That is, life is life not only when it's wanted Life is life not only when it's convenient. Life is valuable even when it was conceived in some kind of sinful activity. It is always valuable at all times and at all places because it bears the image of God. From conception to grave, from womb to tomb, we bear the image of God Almighty. We don't have rights over ourselves. We don't have rights over ultimately over others. Over the life of others. God does. And so he's the one who has to tell us. How we. We we have to treat all life then. Out of respect of him. Because every person represents someone. Infinitely greater than themselves. So that means that we treat each person. With dignity and respect. With care and honor. Not merely for their sake. But for God's sake. That's why. This Sunday is designated as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Sanctity is a good word. Its root is the same as the word sanctify, and the basic meaning there is holiness. So when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we are talking about the sanctity, the holiness, the sacredness of human life itself. And of course, it's interesting even, you know, non-Christians and even those who are pro-abortion, they, they tend to take the sanctity of human life for granted. Even today in the modern secular side of the social justice movement, people seem to want to take human dignity very seriously. And they seem to want to say that wherever human dignity is being violated by oppression or something like that, then we should fight against it. And yet at the same time, among many of those same people, there's a weird hypocrisy when it comes to the unborn. And that is that life is sacred unless it's unborn and unwanted. And then all of a sudden it's not so sacred anymore. 
There are deeper philosophical problems too, and that is this, that only God can, only God can make human life sacred. And so when you take God out of the equation like, like uh, has been fought for for many years and is large, gaining a, a large amount of popularity, when you take God out of the equation, we can't be surprised then when things like this happen. Because the natural logic of it is that if, if all we are really is highly evolved animals that came here for no reason and will go extinct for no reason and uh, we just exist from nothing to nothing, then the reality is, is there is no meaning. There is no value. You're a wet blob of dust and so am I. And that's it. And so at that point... We might not like what Hitler did, but we can't say he was doing anything objectively wrong. Not if we're consistent with our worldview. But the problem is, is that human, because we are made in God's image, even the most ardent secularists can't go that far. Because deep down in our heart of hearts, we just know that that's not true. We know that human life is sacred, even if our belief system won't let us Hold it and thank God that that's true. Thank God that we can all agree on that, whether we believe in God or not. Yet at the same time, we can't, when it comes to the issue of abortion, we can't, there's, inherently everyone knows that human life is sacred, Christian or non-Christian. Most people believe that. And so there's only one way when it comes to the uh, uh, issue of abortion to alleviate one's conscience. When it comes to the, that issue, when deep down we know that life is sacred, there's only one way to alleviate our conscience, and that is this, to tell ourselves that unborn babies are not human. Because then guess what? That solves my problem. I can get rid of them without what? Without murder. Without the destruction of innocent life. And so if we can convince everyone then that an unborn baby is a blob of cells or a fetus or tissue, anything but a baby, then guess what? We can get rid of it. Because it's not human. Surprisingly, the pro-life movement has a surprising has a has an ally here, and that is science. Few statistics for you. Three weeks after conception, the heart begins to beat. Five weeks after conception, blood cells, kidney cells, nerve cells develop. The brain and spinal cord and heart begin to further develop. Gastrointestinal tract begins to form. Six to seven weeks after conception, the arms and legs develop. The brain forms into five distinct areas and brain activity begins. Eyes and ears begin to form. Heartbeats detectable. Blood pumps through the main vessels. Eight weeks after conception, lungs start to form. Other parts continue to grow. Distinct fingers and toes can be seen. Nine weeks after conception, hair follicles form. The baby begins to yawn and suck their thumb. All essential organs have begun to grow. Ten weeks after conception, eyelids can close. Facial features become more distinct. All this happens in the first trimester. The greatest apologetic for the pro-life movement is the ultrasound. You should go see one. It's amazing. 
It's amazing. Life. And if you want to see something that makes your gut wrench like it's never wrenched before, go watch a video of an abortion. You won't be able to stomach it. What happens? What, they, what happens to those babies? But you see, they don't show that on TV because... If you don't see it, you don't have to deal with it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And perhaps the greatest tragedy of all of this, and in all the rhetoric that we see today, and really the murderous lies of the so-called pro-choice movement, is that they're deceiving multitudes of vulnerable young women who are truly scared and afraid when they become pregnant outside the protective and provisioning structure of committed marriage. They don't know what to do. They don't know how they're going to care for a baby. The father, in most cases, certainly isn't going to provide for it, and we make our worst choices when we're scared and afraid. And then, and on top of all that, you then have a whole industry built around telling these vulnerable young women, just kill your baby. If you don't think Planned Parenthood is about anything more than money, you need to do a little more research. When you can get millions and millions of government dollars to kill babies, then guess what? You'll sell it to people too by telling them it's okay. We must combat the lies. We must step in and proclaim the truth to, the, to, to these vulnerable young women who are tempted by fear and lies to make a decision that will have ramifications beyond anything that they can imagine. And, nobody, and if we don't tell them, nobody's going to. There's all kinds of sociological research that shows the effects on a young woman in her life after she's had an abortion. Which is why you have so many people who, so many women who have had abortions who are pleading with other young women saying, no, please don't. Which is why I believe the greatest way that we can help end abortion in our country is through the support of pregnancy care centers. Because women need to know that abortion is not the only option. And they need to know, really they need to know that abortion is not an option at all. That they are not alone. They need to know that babies don't ruin a life. Babies are alive. And babies give life. And even if you feel like at this time that that life can't be supported by you, then hey, we'll take it. You don't have to kill them. We'll take it. I'll say it, I'll say it right now. I'll say it right now and put it on YouTube. We'll take the baby. My, Meg and I will take it. We'll take it. Don't kill them. We can tell these young women, don't be afraid, don't fear. You and your baby can have life. It doesn't have to be either or. You don't have to go this, through this alone. There are pregnancy care centers and churches ready to stand by you to help you so that you can have joy and peace and confidence in knowing that what you did was right. There's a local, there's a pregnancy care center in Dublin called ABC Women's Clinic. I, I, I wholeheartedly encourage you to support it. 
Maybe in honor of sanctity of human life, you want to go on their website, you can look it up and give a, just a one-time donation, just in honor of sanctity of human life. Or I'm sure there's other needs that they have that you can reach out to them for. The abortion rate has actually been in decline over the last several years, and I think it's largely because of ultrasounds and the, the work of pregnancy care centers and the like. As our country moves from a brisk walk to a full-on sprint away from its roots uh, in, Ju- in the Judeo-Christian worldview, as I've said before, the sexual revolution is going to continue to have lots of casualties. That is, more and more people are going to come to see the bankruptness of the elevation of so-called sexual liberty to an idolatrous status. In other words, they're going to see that what, that the, what all the sexual liberty junk is, uh, has promised them, they're going to see that it can't deliver. They're going to see that it hurts and it causes hurt. And as that happens more and more, guess what? We have the opportunity and the privilege to stand right there and not gloat, but say, dear brother, dear sister, I know a better way. Your life is sacred. Your body is sacred. Your child is sacred. Let me show you a better way. That God's laws aren't enslaving, they're freeing. There is a way out. And you can find joy in living as we were made to live. And that brings us to the most important thing as we close this morning, and that is this. Abel's blood cried out to the gra- from the ground to God. But in the book of Hebrews, there's a very important verse near the end of the book which says this. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than that of Abel. What does that mean? It means this. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. And his blood is more than enough to cover all the blood of all the babies that have ever been aborted in the world. And so if anyone in this room or anyone who might ever even listen to this sermon had any factor to play whatsoever in abortion, you need to know this today. Jesus Christ, blood can cover all of your sins. It can wash you whiter than snow. It can remove every single, every single bit of your guilt. And you can stand before him with a clean conscience because Jesus paid for that sin. Just like all of us in all of our sins, the only way that any of us can be forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's my plea this morning. Your sins can be forgiven in him. Turn from him. Confess your sin. Repent repent of your sin. Run to Christ who alone can forgive you of your sin. And he will not turn you away. If you turn to him with all your heart. That I can promise you today. And all your sins past, present, and future will be forgiven in him. 
and you can stand with the saints, and you can stand with us in this world as we fight for the dignity of all human life. Let's pray.